Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode number 61 is Richard X. Heyman. Now, he may well have reached the height of his fame as a young teen in the 60s, playing drums in the New Jersey garage rock band The Doughboys. But after that, he was a session musician for a long time, sometimes on drums, sometimes on keyboards, writing songs, but not recording them until... His first solo album in 1988, where he played all the instruments, though he often has his wife play bass. You are listening to Fall Away, the single from Hey Man, his second album, 1990, when he was on a major label. Since then, he's been strictly indie, for the most part a one-man band, earning consistently rave reviews from critics. He's put out 11 solo albums, and we're going to talk about Incognito, the title track from his 2017 album, then look back to Cornerstone, the title track from his 1998 album, and then move to an outlier, a keyboard-based tune, Agnostic's Prayer from Tears, 2011. We'll close by listening to another song from Incognito, and then. I should say that I also got some information about Richard's attitude in his musical life from his 2002 book of autobiographical anecdotes, Boom Harang. For more information about Richard, check out richardxhayman.com. For more about this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you enjoy this at all, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. All right, so I'll have played some of Falling Away, the new version to get us into it, but we want to get pretty quickly to the current album. It's been a little difficult for me to figure out an overall trajectory for your work from that time, from the late 80s to uh, now, just because you were already a mature songwriter by then, right? You'd written hundreds of songs from 1965 through the 80s before you actually recorded this first album. I know we have like a single from 1980 there, but... That's true. Just never had the opportunity to put it out on any sort of uh, release. Yeah, so say something about where you're at stylistically in terms of the development to get to this current album here. Like you said, there's really no trajectory. It's just a kind of haphazard uh, motion. I just write one song at a time, and there's really no thematic plan, kind of just a a free-for-all. So it's hard to really say. Okay, because I know, you know, like Tears we're going to talk about, that that was specifically, you know, I want to do a bunch of keyboard songs. Right. And then I also heard you in another interview say that once you get on a an album project and you need songs to fill that out, then, well, that connotes, you know, let me write more stuff in that vein. I guess let's focus on the song Incognito. Say a little about that before we play in the whole thing. It's got a lot of the traditional birdsy kind of stuff that's on a lot of your stuff. It has a Rickenbacker 12 string to start things off, but yet it's more creepy. You have effects on the chorus. It's a little more psychedelic than I'm used to hearing from you. Yeah, that's true. It just melodically seems to want some of those affectations. I think the chorus was begging for a phased vocal, and I couldn't resist it. And I started adding all kinds of phase to the vocal. 
on the word incognito. And then once we got into that, we said, well, let's put it on the Rickenbacker as well. So we got phase and echo on the Rickenbacker. The riffs actually sounded nice and pristine, just the plain Rickenbacker through the amp. And I was all set to go with that. But then uh, our friend Tony, who, who mixed the album, just on his own put all those effects on that Rickenbacker. So that kind of set the tone for that production. But that's still a an issue really with this song treat as an individual thing, not something that, you know, it's not like we hear gothic overtones on the rest of this album. No, no. Like I said, I usually work one song at a time with the exception of the album Tears, where I was going for a chronological account of my relationship with Nancy. That was a little different. Uh, but once you, know, you start putting these songs together, you kind of start to discover along with future listeners if there's a theme at all, because sometimes there surprisingly is some sort of connection between the songs that you didn't even realize. I think that part of what happened with Incognito it, uh, had a certain element of darkness, not terribly so, but just enough to, like you say, sound slightly creepy. <laughs>
generally, if there is a theme in that song, it's just a, it's basically about false accusations and injustice. Well, yeah, I saw you had a whole the video for this that you had all these like black and white movie tropes, like the fugitive. It's a very cinematic song. We told our video director to try to include clips from the show The Fugitive because uh, it just seemed to fit the mood of the song. And then there's also a very famous movie called I'm a Prisoner from a Chain Gang with Paul Muni, and that's in there as well. And they both deal with people that were completely innocent of their offense and were on the run. I also read that you don't like talking about Let's interpret the lyrics of the song. Tell me literally, you know, we're not going to do any of that, but in terms of just talking about your techniques for coming up with, did you have kind of a story in mind when you're going into this one, when you were deciding on the lyrics, or did you have more of a specific images and specific lines, and then it just kind of expands from there? Most of my songs start as a, a musical endeavor. You know, I'm, I'm primarily a musician, and I, I work on it song, usually with an instrument, sometimes, you know, comes while I'm walking around or even sleeping. But for the most part, I have a guitar or piano, and I'm coming up with ideas for chord progressions and melodies and harmonies, and that, that's really in the forefront of my thinking, is what you know, is happening musically that's going to make this work. And then at some point, sometimes very close to the inception, sometimes later, then you start hearing a word or two or a phrase or more depends on each song and and then it is a matter of craft at that point the funny thing about pop music or any music with lyrics is it's got to have a marriage of sound the sound of the words have to sound right with the music so you know that's the challenge is to first try to get it to sound right and then you start to think about what is this story going to be I've got a few things that sound right. So in the case of Incognito, it was a matter of I had the four-syllable chorus. I didn't have any word for it yet. And I was thinking, should it be four different words, two two-syllable two words, you know, there different combinations. And all of a sudden, Incognito came into my head. It just seemed to fit perfectly with the melody and, and the phrasing. So now I have Incognito. So then, okay, what does that tell me? That tells me, you know, somebody's kind of trying to hide in plain sight and so you take it from there or once you have incognito do you just repeat it through the chorus or do you try to rhyme it incognito total frito i I don't know (laughs) there's no good it depends on the song this song i didn't feel that Uh. i felt like it was just kind of a mantra that just sounded right repeat it it usually repeats twice in a regular chorus and i think four times the double chorus toward the end yeah, there's a lot of elements in here that are kind of hypnotic like that, that you've got the repeated chorus, you've got the transition riff that... Even especially just that intro Rickenbacker riff, this could be a seven-minute-long song in terms of just spinning <laughs> these things out. That's a, a good example of sitting with a guitar. A lot of these songs come about when I'm in the middle of recording another song. I'll be sitting there while Nancy's getting some technical thing together and I'm waiting, I'm sitting there with the guitar and that's when, for some reason, I get the most inspiration and I start fiddling around and next thing I know, I'm playing that riff. It just came out of nowhere. I just, you know, you place your fingers down on the fretboard and you start arpeggiating. If the first thing you hear sounds good, you kind of take a chance and move to somewhere else and if it sounds good, yeah. That's right. And then you move to the third thing and the fourth thing. Next thing you know, you have a riff. And with the 
gesture to rock it up. In other words, when you add the second guitar and the syncopated drums, you know, after you've established the riff, like that's what makes it, it's no longer a mantra song. This is a pop rock thing. I mean, does that come very immediately after that initial riff? No. No. Not on that song. That came later when I uh, was doing the drum tracks and trying to figure out what's going to be the most effective groove. And then the secondary riff for me was kind of trying to ape uh, kind of a stonesy thing where they always have like a secondary riff, it seems. Like the prime example would be Jumpin' Jack Flash. Like the opening riff happens, you think, what a fabulous riff. It can't get any better than that. And then all of a sudden they hit you with the other riff, the main riff. And it's like, oh. So I was trying to do a double riff kind of thing where you have what seems like the main riff and then another riff comes in and it's like, oh, maybe that's the main riff, but they kind of work together. Well, that second riff is what drives the actual verse, that you seem to be following that pretty closely. Well, it's the same kind of tone on the guitar, for sure. It's a dirty guitar against the very clean Rickenbacker. I'd never pictured a Keith Richards sort of, you know, especially in the verse, it gets even dirtier. But then it's answered by this Roger McGuinn birdsy thing. Picturing those two guys in a band together, that's a pretty cool combination. Yeah, that, again, was an afterthought. Because on those little between riffs on the verse, I could have done more like a kind of Chuck Berry or Rockin' Keith Richards kind of riff. And I did try that, and it sounded okay. But then I just started trying to do arpeggios that mimicked the main riff to kind of keep that kind of arpeggiated feel throughout the song, you know, against the crunchy, dirty guitars. And then in neither of those, I wouldn't picture in the Stones or the Birds that transition riff, which almost seems more like a Motown kind of thing. That do 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 do. You know, let's have everything where, stop. Where it stops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That originally was just a drone. It was just bling 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 bling. And then I got bored with that, and I started keeping the drone but moving a few notes like a little raga rock. A lot of this is trial and error. So after you've done Incognito a couple times, you start harmonizing it just to you know make it so the last chorus is not the same as the first chorus. Can you say a little about, this is one of the most interesting things throughout your work, is how you come up with the voicings for the group vocals there. Obvious Bird's influence there. It's everything. I mean, I grew up listening to all that stuff over and over again. My entire adolescence and teenage years were just immersed in Beatles and Birds and Who and Stones and Kinks and Beach Boys and Motown and, you know, all that 60s music just seeped into my brain so heavily that when I'm working on my own stuff, I kind of use it as a touch point. You know, you try to be original on top of that. But, you know, nothing's created in a vacuum. You have to have some initial inspiration. So, you know, as far as, you know, voicing harmonies, it's just a matter of music theory and fundamentals and harmony and that kind of thing, which, you know, I learned about in school, but it's also just something that you, you feel emotionally. So when you're figuring out what the melody is and what, how it's going to be harmonized in the incognito part toward the end of the song, are you actually writing that on guitar or it's just in your head and... Is it not until you actually get to recording it that you're, okay, let's try this harmony here, and I like the way that's suspended, and there you go. Or are you actually thinking in terms of intervals 
and maybe even figuring them out of the guitar first? All of the above. I mean, it just depends on the song. I think on Incognito, I heard the one higher harmony on the word Incognito pretty soon just seemed to fit. Sometimes I'll put like a lower harmony in to kind of give it a little more depth, fill it out. So, you know, it's really three-part harmony there, but it's very subtle. And would these be re-recorded? You mentioned often using the Beach Boys technique of for each harmony, you're, you're recording it how many times? At least three? Um, no, I usually just double it. Okay. Occasionally I'll do a triple track, but not that often. Two seems to be enough for me. But I've heard the Beach Boys do triple a lot of stuff. Yeah, when I was taking uh, some of my tunes in to mix, I'd record at home and take him into a studio to mix, and he'd always grab like the performance of the second chorus background vocals and just pull them on top of the first chorus just so that they'd be so everything would be doubled even though you know that was not my intention it might have even been slightly different but something so i should just do that in the first place <laughs> yeah whatever works i mean i used to always double track everything because i, I grew up listening to early Beatles stuff and it was most of that stuff was double tracked and I just out of habit would double track my lead vocals and everything was doubled and then I finally came to the conclusion that there was more of a connection I think from the singer to the listener if at least the, when the vocal is solo that it was just solo track so that you really heard a person telling the story and then when you come to the harmonies I usually double track them but not even then not always just depends on how it sounds. Yeah, it always seems like the doubling thing, of course, that's a technique. When you just double once and you do it on the lead, like, well, that's the, the early Beatles sound. But when you're kind of doing that with a bunch of background vocals, like in a mesh, going toward the Beach Boys thing, which I think Beach Boys, they would do it definitely more than twice. It was quite a few times. And then the Queen and the Cars and other groups did that as well, where it would be like for every harmony, everybody in the band that can sing will sing that harmony in unison. You know, it just creates a totally different crowd feel. And when you do that, even on the lead, like then it's no longer a person. It's an organization. <laughs> That's kind of why the birds, you know, are so distinctive in terms of it's not necessarily, except on a few songs, Gene or Roger's voice jumping out. It's this group noise. It's hard to resist because it does homogenize the vocal and it starts to sound very creamy and it's it's very satisfying to do. But I noticed when I would listen to Friends recordings and they were doubling everything, I start to lose the personality of the person and I realized it's just so tempting to do that. You get carried away and you got to force yourself to sing this song by yourself so that there's this emotional connection and then, you know, if you want to double up on the harmonies, that's fine. You know, unless you have Beverly Brothers, where you, you don't have to double because you have this incredible, beautiful harmony from the sibling genes. Now I'm picturing all these singers that are noted for their rock emotionality tripling themselves. Like I want to hear one <laughs> Jim Morrison or Robert Plant or, you know, these guys. Just try that once. Just see what that's like. It's probably somewhere there in the back catalog. I, I'm not thinking of, but it sounded great on the Beatles stuff in the beginning. But even they stopped doing it after a while. I mean, they were they were using artificial double tracking by Revolver, I guess. But you know, I, I mean, I grew up with that sound, that Hard Day's Night sound, where it's just constantly two voices singing in unison. Well, it's also interesting how that interacts with the having distinct personalities that you want to hear. 
that you know you're certainly not going to get that in the Queen way of recording. That is it just all Freddie Mercury? Who knows? And you know, with Beatles, that's at least part of the appeal is everybody knew every member of that group well enough that you can pick out those or the band where everybody has such a distinctive voice and they're all singing in harmony. And the lack of cohesion is kind of one of the appeals of it. Of course, doing that against yourself, that's not really an option. It's going to sound the way it sounds. You don't, you don't know until you do it when you start harmonizing with yourself. But some people have a better blend with themselves than others. I wanted to call attention to one spot in here. I think it's before the third verse. You're doing the transition like it's going to go to a chorus and then you open up with this, we've started the riff and then, hey, no, let's just stop and shift and do a, another verse. And it even kind of sounds like it's a different key. I don't think it actually is. I'll tell you what happened there. I was working on guitar parts one day and I would loop a little section to work on a part. And you know how like you know, we have Logic Pro, so you, know, you just loop this thing and it just plays the same little two-bar section over and over again. And where it begins and ends is wherever you put the cursor. I just happen to have it this certain way where that's what it kept playing. That chord, which is actually the last chord of the riff, it has nothing to do with the riff before it, but it kept looping like that. And I kept hearing it over and over again, and I couldn't stop listening to it. I thought, God, this sounds so interesting to me, even though it's nothing I would have ever thought of or planned. It's one of those happy accidents for me. You know, Nancy fought me on it. She didn't like it. And I said, no, we got to put it in. we got to actually create that. So that's, I think, what you're talking about is where... It's, yes, yes, it's in lieu of a bridge. It's <laughs> the little Raga rock thing. It's the Raga little guitar and then it goes into what is the last chord of the main Rickenbacker riff. And they have nothing to do with each other, but I just happened to hear it like that on this loop. You know, I thought, for once I'm going to do something, you know, crazy like that, that, you know, I wouldn't have done in the past. It's just because I felt like if I'm liking it, somebody else is going to hear it and like it. That's the closest to a bridge we get here. And eventually Nancy kind of like accepted that. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting jump there. And then the thing with the last verse is it starts with just our friend Julia playing cello. Yeah, there's no guitars. It's all just cello and bass and drums for the first half of the verse. Yeah, it's interesting that you're able to, you've gone into this as distorted as your guitars tend to get Keith Richards thing in the verses, but then it has to not take up enough space so that not only can the birdsy guitar chime in, but there's room for cello, which is a difficult mixing task, I would think. Yeah, it was getting a little crowded, but uh, I think we just made it. I mean, if I had to do it over again, I would have not had the Keith Richard-type riff playing on the main chorus sections all the time. I would have left that out and had have it come in at strategical points for impact. But, you know, live and learn. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get another variation of this arpeggio craft out here. Cornerstone, the title track from Cornerstone, 1998. Anything to say about this project and this song before we play it? It's basically about you know the juxtaposition of impermanence and endurance, I, I guess you'd say. It's about facades crumbling, having a solid foundation, that kind of thing. And also, literally, the was a section of my hometown where they just tore down an entire block. It was the commercial section, which we 
called downtown in Kleinfeld. And uh, it just was devastating. And they tore these buildings down. And now it's a Target or something? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a parking lot, actually. But now, I don't know what it is. I haven't been back there. But uh, I think I said in the liner notes on the album that when once the song was done and recorded, it kind of dawned on me that it was more about my relationship with Nancy again. It was just like you know, all these accoutrements of romance and, and their feelings for one another. Some things can fade away, but you know, if there's this solid foundation, that's the most important thing, and that's what lasts. Well, for someone who doesn't like revealing the meanings of lyrics, that was that was good.
talk about the arrangement a little bit. How many guitars are in this <laughs> eight? Cornerstone was more of a group effort, actually. Uh, Andy Resnick was playing guitar. I was playing guitars. And uh, I can't remember. I think Nancy played bass. I might have played bass. I, I'm not sure. I, pl- I played drums. There was, I believe, two six-string acoustics, uh, which would have been, uh, must have been my Martin. And then Andy's playing Telecaster with a slightly dirty sound. I think that's really it. I think it's just the two acoustics and the electric. Okay. I think it builds up a kind of wall of sound, but it's, I think it's just those three guitars. Even just the intro, I kind of wonder about this kind of arpeggiating. Is is there a melody in mind, or is it just kind of what rises to the surface of what the various guitars are doing? Like, okay, it's the combination of these sounds is what's setting. That really was just a free-for-all. I don't think it was planned out that heavily. I think it was just... I can't remember for sure, but I'm pretty sure we're tuned down. The guitars are tuned down. It's been a long time. I can't remember if it's a half step or a whole step. One thing I do take a lot of uh, consideration in is the key that the song is in so that the vocal has the right sound. And for that song, I kept experimenting. And, you know, sometimes it means tuning down the guitar lower. Lisa, the days before, had a baritone guitar. So I would tune down you know, the regular guitars to get the vocal in the right key. You know, on that song, I wanted it low. Because one thing I like about some of the birds' harmonies is that the high part isn't really that high. You know, it sounds high because it's sung in a choir boy voice by Crosby, but it's really not that high. And it gives it this ethereal feeling because it's not pushed. You know, whereas in a lot of Beatles songs, McCartney's like pushing, you know, because the keys are pretty high. And so you get that gritty sound that they would do like on something like Thank You Girl or, you know, where it's pushed and even the low part is kind of gravelly and pushed. And it's really a kind of more rocking sound. And the birds were more like kind of this unworldly, godly sound. It was just this beautiful choir. So I was trying to get something like that where it was lower and not pushed at all. Yeah, I'm definitely guilty. I, I love to layer a lot of harmonies. What I think of is muppetizing, which is, let's just put one more harmony on top of that and make the drummer or you know, somebody who's like the third or fourth singer. Why don't you do that really high falsetto on top of that? And then, well, you know what? Why don't you sing an octave lower than me for the, for the fourth? And it just becomes this wall of, uh, it can work, but it can sound, again, like the Muppets in terms of ridiculous. Yeah, so much experimentation goes into this stuff you can't be too set in your ways i think nancy and i have this term what we call the listenability test and first we do it for the actual song itself because i've said many times over the years i thought i was working on the best song i've ever written my masterpiece this is it and then i would hear it back and i listen to it and i say man this is not that good and then there'd be like some filler some song that was just some little jokey song and you listen to that back and say ah that's really a good one. So was this one that you knew was central? I mean, thematically, the way you just described what it means, and this is just one of the ones that jumped out at me melodically and you know, seems to have real staying power. Was that clear from the start with this? I remember at the time, I, I just felt very strongly about the song, and that's why it became the title track. You know, there's certain songs you just feel like, oh, this is definitely turning out. I mean, they never come out as good as you're hoping, but this one at least felt like it should be the lead off track and I'm going to call the album Cornerstone. 
Well, I know you had a good seven years or so between albums while you were searching for a new record company or a way to release this stuff. Was this pretty early in the process? So this was sitting around for five years or this, or was this kind of toward the end, you know, one of the more mature works on the, on the album? Yeah, I think it was more toward the beginning, I think. That's what I wasn't sure, like whether this album really is kind of a best of those seven years or, or more, if you're drawing on earlier stuff, or whether these were when you actually got around toward the end of that period to putting the album together, then you wrote most of these. This was going to hopefully be the follow-up album to Hey Man when I was still on Sire Warner Brothers. And then I got dropped unceremoniously, and uh, I had this record pretty much... I don't know if I was thinking they were more demos than, you know, because I would have obviously recorded them in a, a big studio if I was still on fire. But I did these on ADAT. ADATs just were coming out. That's, you know, where you, you record on the videotape. And this guy out in Brooklyn said he had this thing called ADATs. And I said, I don't know, I'll give it a try. So it was recorded in this guy's bedroom in a little Brooklyn apartment, even the drums. I brought my drums up into his little apartment and, I would look out the window while I was playing and there'd be like little kids out on the street dancing to the drums. Yes, I'm sitting within three feet of an ADAT right now. I, ah. I only use it to just digitize old tapes occasionally. It's not like I'm trying to use it on new things. They were great for a while, but they had their limitations for sure. But, you know, I did basically with ADATs and Cornerstone. Served their purpose. I have still used that a little bit when getting away from my regular studio space is that... I want to be able to just go and record on a church organ somewhere. Do you do any of that, or do you have do you have a laptop at this point to catch some of that stuff, or everything is just strictly besides the drums in your house at this point? Yeah, it's all right here in the bedroom. It's just like Logic Pro, and we have a uh, Summit preamp compressor, which gives us our analog in to warm things up, put all our vocals through that, put pretty much everything through it. Before we turn away from Cornerstone, again, looking at the harmonies on this, this is more of a classic thick, birdsy kind of harmonies. Is this, again, you've got the main riff and the David Crosby high riff in your head first, and then the other things, the lower things, the things to kind of fill out the middle are things that come up as you're actually recording? The funny thing on that song is that the two-part harmony, which is the verse, yeah, was right there from the beginning. You know, a lot of times, because like I said earlier, I grew up listening to so much harmony music that I write kind of hearing the two parts right away would be like, you know, you're trying to write sort of a Everly Brothers style song. You're going to hear those two parts. So the main melodies of the verse are right from the beginning when I first thought of the song. But then when it goes to the bridge, that's three parts. And that's Nancy, Andy, and I around one microphone. A lot of my stuff I do as a one-man band, and I'm, I'm doing all the harmonies myself, but with that song was more of a group effort, and we're singing a lot, you know, like the three of us around one microphone, and Nancy, you know, I gave her a part. I told Andy to just kind of come up with something. He came up with some middle part that to this day, I don't even know what it is. He's the only one that knows what it is. I hear some kind of sustained things in the middle and, and lower than you that, again, kind of how sometimes when Gene Clark in The Birds, when usually he and Roger McGuinn would just be in unison and that would be kind of the sound, but sometimes they'd have a lower harmony that you, it's really hard to make out what it is. <laughs> I know. I was just listening to that the other day because I always assumed all the bird stuff is two-part harmony, but it really does occasionally break into three parts. But to this day, whenever we do gigs and we do that song, Andy, who still plays with me, 
knows that part and no one else knows what it is. He's going to just keep it to himself. For the verses, if it didn't have that harmony melted into it, it would it very much connoted Gordon Lightfoot to me. That sort of a uh, breed of folk. I'm not sure if there's an ethnic origin to that kind of line or if it's just something. Obviously, I read Gene Clark's book and he talks about the similarities between him and Gordon Lightfoot and they were even, they knew each other and how, even though they're kind of indifferent sociological, musically actually it's pretty darn similar. I love Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, I don't know if I was thinking about him at the time or not, but um, I'm certainly a big fan. I just saw him not too long ago ah. at BB King's here in New York. But yeah, he's, he's unbelievably great. I think a song like that, in the back of my head, I'm obviously thinking Birds, but I think Dylan too. You know how there's a certain righteousness in some of those Dylan songs, and then you know the way the birds would interpret it. So it's kind of going for that. Certainly in this song, and I know you've got Civil War buff and other things, and, and just the use of the historical footage and, and images in incognito just makes me think that that's an ongoing point of fascination with you, is tradition and history. And I was just talking to Nancy the other day about Civil War buff because of all this kind of uh, news of statues being taken down and saying, where does a song like The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down stand now? Is that still valid or is there some reason... <laughs> Is that not cool anymore? It's like strange. I said I was a pretty neutral in Civil War buff because it was really just an anti-war song. That's what I was going for. But uh, I don't want to get too far off the subject, but it's interesting. You know, because being a Civil War buff, at first I was a little kind of confused about taking down statues. And then Nancy just said to me, you know, those people on those statues were fighting to continue and support slavery. As soon as she said that, I said, yeah, you're you're right. Take them down. Well, and I hadn't really thought about that in terms of folk songs. You know, I'm sure there are overtly racist folk songs and things from back in the day, not necessarily ones I'm familiar with. And my dad, you know, was a folk singer in the 60s and sang traditional songs, kind of pre-Bob Dylan folk singer San Francisco scene. Oh, cool. So I grew up with a lot of these old songs around the house, but I don't recall anything that I feel like would have to be, uh, have post hoc editing with current political trends. Well, I'm sure somewhere there's a bunch of pro-Confederate songs, so... Old Blue, the good dog Blue, is probably it's symbolic for something of uh, some, some political statement that I, I wasn't aware of. And I get, you know, that people have pride in their heritage and, and all that, but, you know, I've, just to, to verge off the uh, subject for one second, I mean, I think it's really interesting now that we're in this kind of Trump era, how this big rock has been turned over. All this stuff that was crawling around under the rock is exposed. And, you know, all the talk about slavery and genocide, which are the two factors in the genesis of this country, are being talked about more than ever. You know, I went to a whole public school and college, and, and that kind of stuff was very rarely even talked about. It was like, you know, you just thought of the founding fathers and everything was for the most noble causes. Now it's all coming out. It's going to be interesting to just see where it all ends. Well, I'm going to force that thought into a segue to Agnostic's Prayer, our third song, because that is, you know, I don't hear a lot of overtly political stuff. I haven't listened very closely to a lot of your lyrics for that, but Agnostic's Prayer definitely jibed with one of the chapters in your book about tolerance and agnosticism being kind of a rational position, whereas everybody else is kind of jumping to some conclusion. And you've got a nice way of presenting that where you're using this kind of archaic, 
very flowery, semi-religious imagery. Uh, you know, the whole thing is called a prayer, but in a way of, I think uh, Dawkins might have written a book just on, on the wonder of nature, you know, kind of getting into this. You can still be poetically startled by the wonder of things without then attributing it to a divine presence. And so seeing a little of that in this, but presented in a very, it's not heavy handed at all. So if this is the way, if your way of making a political statement, this is similar to, you know, in Cornerstone, that it's picking up on a certain trend in Dylan and not another trend in Dylan, if that makes sense. Not the overtly political one. Well, first, I mean, yeah, just in general, you definitely don't want to hit people over the head with any lyrical message, I think. It's too overwhelming if it's too literal. And I mean, that's the fun of, of writing songs, you know, trying to come up with just enough information so you get some points across, but there's you know, some, some intentional holes left in the story or in the narrative so that the listener starts thinking about connecting A to B themselves or A to C or whatever it is they're trying to, to do. And there's a lot of interpretation for the listener. So that that's always fun. That is certainly something I think most modern songwriters learn from Dylan and uh, Ray Davies. It's a little more literal, but agnostic prayer was just a series of you know, recognizing the beauty of nature and the world around you and still, like, I mean, you said, you kind of said it all. It's just like, it doesn't have to be attributed to something that there's really no absolute proof and I just don't see the point in that.
So very different sonic palette here. So it's uh, Tears and Other Stories, T-I-E-R-S, 2011, that you had been wanting to do a keyboard album for a while, and so that's what this is. But I kind of zoomed in on the song that is an outlier. Even on that 30-song album, this is kind of maybe the, the most... Well, it's two albums. Oh, okay, <laughs> double album. It's not even a double album, per se. It's, it's really two separate albums. So that's what I intended. I just packaged them together, but people, of course... Didn't quite get that. This is near the beginning of the second album then? The second album is called And Other Stories. Okay. The first album, Tears, is the uh, relationship tale. It's like a little rock opera type deal where it just goes through the uh, trials and tribulations of my relationship with Nancy until uh, everything finally smoothed out and we're still together all these years later. And what happened was I was on, having so much fun with working on keyboard stuff that I, would, I just couldn't stop. It was like, you know, when you're a kid and you're spinning around, you know, it's hard to just stop immediately. So I had to keep going and kept writing. And, you know, I had already finished the whole narrative of the tears story. So I wanted to uh, touch upon just life in New York and just general things we were going through. And so and other stories. So I figured I'd touch on my philosophy about whether there's a God or no God or nature so that's how agnostic prayer came to be i mean i'm certainly leaning more towards the atheist side of things but uh i just kind of kept a little window open so sonically i know we had actual strings on both the previous songs right but here was this just a matter of i'm going to use what i have in the room with me and uh, they're pretty good sounds but it's not i'm done but let me go get an actual cello player in here to yeah i'm trying to remember because some stuff there was string players. I think that was mostly me playing. Uh, there might be one cello in there mixed in. I wasn't sure. The cello and the bass, the bass cello, you know, the main, it sounds really good. Some of the other, when you get into the flute sounds, like that's a little more obviously synth in a, you know, sound in a box. Yeah, I think that's mostly me playing the keyboard, but um, I think there was a cello in there. It's been a while. But what it was basically was a, a piano instrumental that I had. I was thinking of kind of like a movie theme. It was an instrumental for a while, but then all of a sudden it came to me that I could put lyrics to it. We've got the obviously instrumental parts of it, this whole intro, which has some different themes in it than when you actually get down to the the melody riff. But even before that, you've got you know a good 40 seconds or so of 30 seconds before the first low drone that you've got some extra little themes where you're introducing things. Was that an afterthought? That song, like I said, was an instrumental. And okay. I think it just went like that. And then I put the lyrics to it without changing the melodies that I had. But like I said, I was thinking in terms of an instrumental kind of movie theme soundtrack. So would that impose the structure on it that is in there that, okay, we're going to have a couple verses and we're going to you know, hit the chorus in basically the same way? Or was that repetition already there in the instrumental? No, it's just when I say, you know, it was written as instrumental, each part was written, but the arrangement you know, was flexible. So when I came up with lyrics, I just worked on, you know, what's going to be the most effective. Should I have, you know, two verses and then this little break? And the, you know, see, that's more of like arrangement type thing. Whatever it ended up being, it was just based around, you know, how many verses do I have? I think it's three. I usually write three, so it's probably three verses, might be four, but whatever it was, just what what makes the most sense, how you're going to put this in some sort of structure. 
the melody is pretty weird. You know, it's pretty medieval and then kind of goes into slow jazz almost in the pretty part where it's soaring. I mean, is that just because really it was written for the strings? And so, well, well, let's go ahead and have the vocal follow pretty exactly, at least rhythmically, exactly what the backing part is doing during those sections. So you've got, you know, a few fast words and then it slows down and then it's, I just thought that might have been how the lyrics flowed out, but you're saying that, no, that was actually just the music. I almost, as a rule, it's just something that I do that's not right or wrong, but I usually write music, and then whatever that music is dictates how the lyrics are going to fit to it. I very, very rarely change the music. So whatever the music is, I mold the lyrics and the phrasing to what's there musically. I don't know why I do that, but I just find it hard to change it once I've come up with the music but you know sometimes you'll find slight variations from verse to verse because of the syllables and the words so maybe it'll change that way but on a song like that that was pretty much the music and luckily i was able to somehow come up with words that would stretch out and fit the weird kind of medieval sounds in your vocabulary in your word choice here that matches very much this foreign old-timey tone. I mean, the iridescence of a starling, the tempest of the dark sea's fury upon the shore. There's nothing like that in incognito, say. Well, that's true, but in every quaint storefront on the block, one used to stroll by. It's now a dentist's suspicion in incognito. Ah. But to your point... I guess it's just the, the delivery makes it sound so different, that you're delivering it in this kind of 60s rock R&B that's very different than this, this very... You know, sometimes, you know, when you, you see the lyrics on paper, they read differently than they sound when you're listening. Sometimes they're better or worse, but I do work hard on, on trying to come up with the best lyrics I can for each song. It's not like something I just throw away, you know, and just put in whatever I can get to get the thing done. But that's where it's more of a, a craft type thing. You know, usually I find the music is coming from some kind of, you know, initial spark and inspiration. And for the most part, the lyrics I work on, like a homework assignment. Like I find when I, for the songs that I write like that, often when I'm, you know, have the melody bouncing around my head, I have some sort of temporary lyric that if it's not incognito, it's just something that fits that pattern because it's not just da-da-da-da. Like it's easier to remember if you've got something. And then it's really hard to shake that lyric later. And so a lot of times I just end up leaving it. Like I didn't intend these to be the final lyrics, but those are in my head. I'm just going to build the rest of the song around that so that can stay. Yeah, no, I, I do that too. Everybody does that. But we used to have a thing Nancy called X language, which was my gibberish on any new song. And I used to record onto a cassette and play them for her. And she would just sit there and she would hear stuff I was saying. She says, no, I hear words. And she would write down what I was, you know, this total gibberish, but she would hear a few little words and lines out of it. And then I would take it from there. Pull the lyrics, at least the framework, or a few elements out of your subconscious and uh, it's got to have a starting point. I kind of don't do that anymore because of that. You get so married to what the gibberish lyrics sound like that you, you can't change them. So lately I've just been doing doo-doo-doo or just kind of non-English sounding grunts that I won't fall in love with and not be able to change later. Let's talk for a second about the bridge here. You've got an instrumental break.
So you got this break, and I, in fact, I that sounds the most kind of movie theme song like section of that. I'd written video game music next to it. That tonal sonic palette could exactly be you know stuffed into a, the intro to some kind of um, ancient war game sort of thing. <laughs> Okay. And you've got the kettle drum rolls. Did you actually go into a studio just to add your handful of snare drum rolls and things and do this along with the rest of your tracks? I have my drums here in the apartment. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I take uh, floor toms or kick drums and turn them into timpanis and by tuning them. So it's just when you have to do the, the full kit where it's just take so much patience and set up and you know just go do that somewhere else and you'll nail it in two takes and it'll be fine we we have literally you know one microphone at a time ah. here so everything we do here is just with one mic into the preamp compressor so we can't yeah, even think about anything like that I do drums at a place called East Side Sound, and they have nice big studio room where you can get some nice uh, distant room sound. So you haven't seen the need to, like I think I, I remember seeing something with Tom Petty of like, I really like to you know, put one mic on the amp and then put another mic directly on my strings of my electric and do those at the same time. You know, those are the tricky little multi-mic things that you can still do by yourself. Yeah, I wish we could, but we only have the one mic. It's funny you mention that because when we did the last session for this next, the new, new album I'm working on, they were saying, you know, if you want to bring your guitar tracks here, bass tracks, we could reamp them and get some all kinds of big sounds for you. And I said, ah, we'll see if we have the budget to do that. But what I normally do is for electric guitars, I just play through a Fender Champ. So I think, I believe, an eight-inch eight speaker, like a Fender, and it's got a nice vibrato built into the amp, and it's very tubey sounding. And, you know, I never use, like, digital amps for electric. The amp emulators, or the mic emulators, are the ones that I, I don't understand like really this is gonna undo the qualities of my akg and add whatever overtones that you get from this other brand i mean we were told very early on get you know a good preamp compressor so we you know we spent a couple grand and got the summit and it gives you that nice analog to be entrance in the path and then i do all my electric guitars through the fender champ amp and the thing just sounds really nice. You can get it really clean, and you have to use pedals, of course, to do uh, real distorted sounds, but I'm not opposed to pedals. Returning just for a second to the, the melody here, still talking about Agnostic's Prayer. So say a little more about this combination of, you've got the medieval-sounding main riffs and instrumental riffs, and then that chorus that just takes a left turn into, I don't know why it's so natural, to have these floaty jazz melody things there. Do you know what you were channeling in kind of coming up with this combination here? That's just... That whole period coming out of the Tears album, because I really was into writing on the piano for all the songs on Tears. It just was very liberating to me, and I, I just was really feeling a certain muse to get the story out and really excited about the whole thing. And like I said before, I just wanted to keep going, so I kept writing. By that point, I had sort of like honed down my keyboard playing. I'd been playing for months and months and got you know, my fingers were moving better and, and I was able to do some left-hand stuff. So I, I just feel by the time I got to the songs on the second album, 
that I was on a roll as far as writing on the keyboard, and, and I felt like there were no obstacles as far as trying to you know write within a certain pop vein or known structures that you normally do. So for something like Agnostic Prayer, I was just kind of like very free, and, and I just didn't think about anything else except the way it was making me feel. Yeah, it seems that keyboard is more conducive to using thicker chords. <laughs> I mean, at least on guitar, you kind of have the hand structures that you're used to. I may, maybe real keyboardists have this too. I know when I play keyboard, since it's you know my fourth instrument and I'm not that good on it, then it's you know it's just as easy to spread my hands over a cluster of five notes as it is to play a triad, <laughs> more or less. Whereas guitar, it's much more conscious. Okay, now I'm going to move this one finger and I'm going to add a ninth. Uh, you know, whereas keyboard, I don't know what I'm doing as much, so it, you get richer stuff more immediately. Piano is my second instrument, so I'm a little more adept at, at coming up with chords that I, yeah, I certainly wouldn't think of on guitar. I've worked over the years at coordinating my left hand to be able to play actual runs instead of just the standard octaves that most people would do. You know, most guys that are kind of not real keyboard players that are just kind of pounding octaves with their thumb and pinky on their left hand. I only play one hand at a time. <laughs> it's only right hand, pretty much. Yeah, I worked really hard at trying to do actual arpeggios and stuff with my left hand against the right hand. It took a while, but it's kind of like part of my drumming percussion skills is to get that isolation between the hands. And is some of that a matter of learning actual written piano pieces such that pianists that learn through the traditional take a lot of piano lessons over many years, they kind of emerge out of that with these particular gestures, particularly left-hand gestures, I was thinking, you know, that are suggested by all this classical stuff that they've been playing, as opposed to just what you would jam in a rock setting. Yeah, it's all self-taught stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just really, you have to work at it as far as as getting a left hand going, because it's very tempting just to kind of let it sit there and play the root, which I do also, but there's an occasion where I really try to start arpeggiating or playing a bass line with the left hand. What is, as a multi-instrumentalist, what is your, I want to say practice schedule, but that's not the right word in terms of, you know, I know I just go through periods where like, I'm only playing lead guitar when I'm just jamming on my own, or I'm only playing drums, and that's just the mode that I'm in. But that doesn't really lead to very solid, steady advancement in abilities on these various instruments over the years. It means, you know, fits and starts here and there. So is it really just a matter of you use these things as you need them when you're recording nowadays? Or do you just go through periods of, I'm just honing my guitar soloing skills for a year or something? I'm not that dedicated, but uh, (laughs) I mainly come up with parts as I'm working on the recordings, you know, a little bit in the writing, of course. I mean, if a song has a built-in riff, that came with the writing. But a lot lot of the adornment is coming as you listen back to what you've put down. Well, so I guess my question is really a a retrospective one, is that in learning to play all these instruments in the first place, was it mostly a matter of, okay, the first time you got a series of gigs, the band in 69, whatever, you know, where you were playing piano, that's the point in which you just started playing, playing piano a lot and building up those skills. And, you know, it's just kind of a matter of necessity. Or have there been periods of like, okay, now I'm becoming a real bass player? Well, as far as piano, I always had a fascination very early on with piano. So by the time I was in junior high school, I was constantly just playing every chance I had. You know, guitar was 
later, guitar, I didn't really seriously know what the hell I was doing on guitar until I was in college. And then I just struggled at first. I couldn't even play, you know, when I first tried to play a G chord to a C chord, I couldn't believe people actually could do that, could move their fingers. My hands just didn't work that way. I was clutching drumsticks. And, and of course, the piano, your fingers are moving, but it's, it's different than the guitar, as you know. But then, you know, the persistence I, I finally i mastered the g chord and, and i got the c and the d and the e and the, you know you get your basic folk chords going and then it just keeps progressing from there as far as playing lead i mean for me you know you got to learn your basic chuck berry of course and i got into the blues guys and freddie king and stuff like that so i practiced those kind of looks but you know when you're working on a recording Sometimes you're trying to just come up with something unique that hasn't been done before. It's just really sitting there. You're listening back to the rhythm track. Or, I mean, the way I work, I, I finish up the vocals first. So I'll be listening to drums and maybe a bed piano and finished vocals. All the interweaving parts, all the oohs and ahs, the harmonies. And so you're sitting there, you know, playing an instrument to that. And of course, you're going to start hearing ideas. Well, yeah, if you've thickened the chords already with the vocals, which is interesting to hear that that... So yeah, I'd, I'd heard that as a matter of recording, you would put drums down with nothing else, that you have the whole song in your head. You're at least using a click track, right? I've started to, yeah. In the okay. beginning, I wasn't... I mean, when I first started, I was putting down like a piano first with no click. <laughs> I was trying to play drums to that. It was impossible. I, I, I mean, I finally got to the point where... I, got to have something that's in t- you know, really in time to build up. So well, I would inflict that crap on other bandmates. Like, I just recorded a guitar and vocal thing. Go put drums on it. Like, <laughs> you suck. I don't like <laughs> That's not... Well, I got very confused because I, I started... You know, when I first heard, like, Paul McCartney did a one-man band, and then there was an Emmett Rhodes album. This is, like, around 1970. So right after that, very early 70s, I said, I'm going to try that. I, I can play these instruments. So I just thought, okay, you got to start with the song. So I figured, okay, I, I write most of my songs on piano, right, back then. So I put the piano down, which I didn't even know what a click track was back then. And then I tried to play drums to it, and I thought, man, I'm a terrible drummer. I can't even keep time. And, the, and then I realized, it took me a while to realize it's not the drum, it's the piano that's out of time. I'm trying to follow this thing that's speeding up and slowing down. <laughs> So then it dawned on me, your main instrument is a drum, start with the drums. So then I started putting drum tracks down without a click and building up from there. And it was pretty good, you know, because you can play a guitar or piano to a drum track. But just the fact that you don't even have a guide track there, I mean, at least at this point, I usually would have the click, have a guide guitar and vocal, that's the normal thing, and then do the final drums and then replace all that stuff. But you're just saying that you kind of have the song mapped out enough in your mind that no, you just are just playing drums with or without the click and pretending that the band is playing the rest to, to actually have the right number of measures and things. I just recently started, like on this album I'm about to do, I put down a piano and a click. So I did the drums to that. For the, but in the most of my other albums, pretty much all of them, is just for the most part, it's like a click track and drums. It's the first thing that goes down. So you wouldn't even necessarily have to finalize what key it's going to be in. Right. Or do you tune your drums to... to <laughs> you're not one of those kind of tune your drums to match the key for the recordings kind of guy? 
I sometimes if you you know you're going to be thumping away on a certain tom tom and it's going to be a big part of the song, you might want to make sure it's a good note against the key you're going to be in. You don't want like a half step away from the key you're in. Some really unintentional dissonance there. Yeah. Right. So yeah, there are times where I've tuned tom toms. Of course, I'm constantly changing keys, though. So a lot of times, what I thought was going to be the key isn't what the, it ends up being. I mean, that's the one thing I take some time before we commit to really jumping in is what key is this thing going to be in? And I'll sing it in about five different keys and try to assess, you know, what's the best way to go for the harmony and where does the lead vocal sound best? And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's kind of a tough choice because, you know, sometimes you might lose the power of the lead vocal to make the harmony just sit better. I've also noticed the disconnects, you know, when I'm writing something between what seems like a good key when I'm singing by myself and then if I actually then try to introduce the song to a band, which obviously if you're just doing it in studio, it's not as uh, pressing a thing, but just find inevitably, no, no, if I'm playing this with a band, it should be higher than that because... You got to build it out. Yeah. yeah, you're in a live setting. It's going to get covered up by things. It's just not going to have the support it needs. It's you know, so it might be a pretty even the whole song a fourth higher. Not it's not subtle. <laughs> I know it's true. It's like even with tempos. When I was coming up with the tempos for this album, I just the one I'm about to start working on. Nancy and I like carefully like worked on the tempos for the click tracks for me to play to, and invariably would speed everything up when we got to the studio just sound dead it's like sitting in your room working on stuff is a lot different than actually you know when you're going for it and when i sit back behind a drum set and i start really playing hard i realize this is where the tempo should be not there and so we we sped up a lot of stuff my favorite invention like as an iphone app is the bpm app that just listens to you you just snap something and it'll tell you oh that's 132 or whatever it is or are you just, you're a drummer, you're a trained drummer, so I can just say, play 132 and you'll just do that. <laughs> no, I doubt it. <laughs> I had a jazz band teacher that could do that in terms of like knew, knew exactly what the, uh, I could do 120, I could, that, that one I have to, there's a few particular tempos that like I've associated with a past sound, like a past song that like, okay, that's 130. If I can hum that in my head, I know that what that is, but... All right, well, there used to be that thing where people, this is years ago, things probably changed, but, uh, you know, people say, what's a hit song? And they would just go. There you go. You know, right. <laughs> Everything is 120. Yeah, everything's not, but that's where you naturally just kind of go without thinking about it. Let's just give our last introduction here. So we want to have another thing from the current album. And then is just one that stood out to me as one that just really moved me. Uh, my favorite as well. I'm glad you like that one. I always say, you know, when, when I finally finish an album and I realize the one that I really like, I said, you know, this whole album was just an excuse to do on, and then. Like everything else is just, yeah, fluff. All I care about is that song. I know I keep making birds comparisons, and I don't mean to say that what you're doing is derivative or anything like that, but it gives me the feeling I spent time hunting down Gene Clark's solo albums and being frustrated by kind of how scanty they were in terms of how many, how many there were, how many good songs per album. How, like It's not really recreating that thing that I loved about Here Without You and about the first couple solo albums. And uh, when I run across an, an artist then like, well, if Gene Clark had really gotten his shit together and kept working, this might have been what he would put out. And so I imagine mm. you know, that I'm getting that, 
that it's that cool that I'm getting that bonus of extra material by classic bands or something. Uh, that's nice to hear. Here it is from Incognito. And then thanks so much for doing this again. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, my, my pleasure. And uh, I'm going to take that uh, whole Gene Clark comparison as a compliment. Definitely. Choice to make, but you don't know what's out. 
thank you very much to Richard. You know, after that Alejandro Escovedo episode, I was kind of tempted to leave that as my new episode for maybe another week. But then editing Richard's episode, I like it just as much. I had not been aware of Richard at all before Howard Wolfling turned me on to him. Howard has gotten me several of my previous guests. And man, Richard really deserves to be much more famous than he is. And I also want to recommend his work with the Doughboys. They've reunited with a few recent albums out. If you like classic Stones, maybe Aerosmith, definitely check those out. But Richard himself is just a grade-A songwriter and a very funny guy, a good writer. You can read some of his writing and hear his songs at richardxhayman.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please go subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And you might enjoy my other podcast, The Partially Examined Life, at partiallyexaminedlife.com. For my next episode, another big thrill for me, I talked to Anthony Phillips, the original guitarist for Genesis. He records wonderful solo acoustic pieces. Not only an amazing guitarist, but an amazing piano player. And just a really wonderful sense of melody. Been listening to him since I was 17. Hope you check it out. So to remind you, there are three ways that you can help this podcast. Number one, spread the word. Go like our Facebook group and share this episode or other episodes on your favorite social media outlets. Number two, go to the iTunes store or wherever you listen to this and give us a positive rating or review. That stuff really helps in terms of iTunes exposure. Number three, I gotta say, I'm kind of running out of time here. The Partially Examined Life have been funding this podcast for two years now. It is yet to turn a profit. You have yet to hear any advertisements. So we're talking over some fairly drastic measures. You can help me prevent those by going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and signing up for a little bit of recurring support. If just a hundred of you do that, I will be safely out of the woods. This podcast will definitely continue. Otherwise, who knows? All right, on that note, I hope you're having a lovely winter. Keep on musicking. This is Mark Lintemeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.